0: Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers, and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. One, to make you write more, two, to make you write better, and three, to make you happier while you do those things. To that end, I speak to writers from all around the world. I often look at listeners' first pages and give advice on how they can make them even better, and then sometimes I just talk about my struggles with anxiety and depression, which you wouldn't think would contribute to that goal. Maybe they don't. I don't care. You're a captive audience. You don't always know what I'm going to talk about before I start and then probably test your liberal sensibilities a little bit. Seems a bit mean to switch off. Maybe you do. I don't know. I have only got the data of how many people at least start listening to the episode. Perhaps whenever I start talking about my own mental health, you start, Um, you all switch off. That sounds, now I sound paranoid, don't I? Um, I'm cool with that. It's fine it's fine um so today anyway is not uh about that third thing i am mostly joking it's uh it's lovely to have you back on on the show listening at least um today's episode i'm chatting with well not an author a, a scientist a neuroscientist to be specific to be even more specific should we narrow it down to one um I, I'm, I'm chatting to uh the uh, neuroscientist uh adam green um, from, uh, Georgetown University in Washington. Um, he is, well, I really enjoyed this talk and it was a real treat because I, you know, I, I've got a big copy of neuroscience fifth edition on the floor. It's a massive book, like enough that if it fell off a shelf, it could probably, uh, kill a kitten. Um, so I keep it on the floor. You can never be too careful. Um, so I've been slowly sort of educating myself about the brain. And the more I read about it, the more I realise I don't know. Actually, it's what it's doing is largely I'm unpicking a lot of this sort of like info I've sort of picked up from pop psych and make me realise it's a bit more complicated than that, which is good. That's the first stage, right, is realising my ignorance. But it means if I want to talk about it on the show, because I think we, it means I want to get experts on and I want to let them talk rather than just reading stuff and then translating it to you, because I you know, I I might oversimplify. I might get it wrong, and it's really good to a, a lot of the scientists I talk to are really great. You know, these researchers are great communicators of their research, uh, and they're the most you know knowledgeable people to talk to. So I ask them, and they, so far everyone has said yes, which is really nice. So um, Adam is the uh, founder and current president of the Society for the Neuroscience of Creativity, and he's got a PhD in cognitive neuroscience. Um, So I wanted to talk about creativity because we do talk about creativity all the time on the show from an artistic perspective. You know, this idea of it in a sort of nebulous cultural sense. We talk about training creativity. I think that that's, you know, a reasonably practical side of things where we go, well, if you're feeling not very creative, if you're struggling, if you're blocked, how can you get around those blocks? Here's some practical behaviours that you can enact that might lead to you creating and generating new things. I've shared exercises with you. Uh, about, you know, the idea generation, how you can practice that and get better at it. So it's not like we haven't talked about it from a craft perspective. And sometimes we talk about it from a kind of psychological perspective, I suppose, like, you know, if you're feeling in this kind of mood, you might be less creative, you might block yourself through anxiety. So we've talked about all those things. Um, But we haven't talked about it in terms of the neuroscience of creativity. And I think, and you may or may not agree with me, that the world of writing um, has a certain, if not aversion, then certainly mild suspicion around anything that l- looks like it might have some kind of like biological reductionism baked into it. You know, that might be saying this is actually we can explain this all with electrical signals in the brain. It doesn't feel very flattering to what we do um, as writers. Or at least I think that is the common perception. Although I'm hugely excited about it when we had Martin Lotz on the show and he talked about doing the his fMRI scans of writers' brains and non-writers' brains when they were writing and seeing what parts of the brain were activated based on whether someone was an experienced writer or didn't generally do creative writing and that it was comp- it was different hemispheres of the brain. To me, that's fascinating. Actually, hugely, hugely sort of uplifting really that we can kind of train our brains that these things that we're learning about neuroplasticity and the ability of our brains to kind of create new connections seems to be borne out right so if you practice writing you get better at it but also you start enacting different parts of your brain so yes writers and non-writers have you know their brains work differently but that appears to be through practice so there's no such thing as a purely born writer you may have some kind of like mild you know sort of neurocognitive advantages but mainly it comes from practice which you know I would have said anyway but now i've got a bunch of evidence to support that and so i wanted to talk to adam because i was like i just want to you know what i don't even know if you actually sort of not if you put if you put a gun to my head and ask me any question i think i'd probably struggle because i'd be very anxious and um it would make it very difficult to think But if you asked me to define creativity, I think, you know, I would certainly hesitate. I don't have a quick pat answer. I know, I think I know the sort of space it's operating in, I think. But actually, I think kind of actually burrowing down into these things and asking the big and small questions about them helps refine our thinking, helps stimulate new questions for us and... Adam was just, like, really great about chatting about this. He was just really, really interesting. He had so much to say that was um, sort of simultaneously accessible, but it's based on the latest research. I have to say, right, this is so cool, right? He... Um, he uh, so his work, you'll hear about this in the episode, but i just like to give you some background. He, he, so he studies the way that creativity sort of normally happens in the brain which is sort of you know the what's called the endogenous neural mechanisms so that's what's already going on in your brain when you have to be creative which as humans we all have to do um but then he also does work with with research and studies with uh what's called exogenous neurostimulation so basically this is uh brain zapping is what he calls it um Transcranial direct current stimulation. So basically, it's like putting, passing electricity through different parts of the brain to speed up the working of those areas to see, basically, if you stimulate that part of the brain, does someone then perform better in a creativity-based task? Or do they perform worse in a creativity-based task? And if they do perform better, then one can begin to hypothesize that maybe that is part of the brain that is partly responsible for some of the processes we bring under the rubric of creativity. So it's really fascinating. And of course, it's not, you know, it's it's not all totally, you know, it's, 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 it's of course, the brain is hugely complex. You don't need me to say, tell you that. So um, it's not as easy as just zapping one area and then going, well, there, that solves it. That's the bit because uh, parts of the brain can be sort of junctions or kind of like highways or changeovers to other parts so if you speed that bit up or slow it down then data you know signals getting all across the brain are slowed down or speeded up so it, you know and creativity is complex as many different parts as adam will go into and talk about so it's it's hugely interesting to me now i'm not suggesting that the only reason to listen to this episode is if you envision yourself in the future becoming a kind of part of the new cyborg class of authors um, using electrical currents to stimulate your brain. But the good news is, you know, like various part, parts of these, you know, creative pathways, their performance can also be improved through practice. That's how the brain's always worked, right? This is the famous dictum, what which you've heard on the show from various scientists already, but what fires together, wires together. So we've got this idea that, like, you can use some of these things through practice but what his work is doing is allowing them to kind of like isolate those areas in the lab and also i mean the implications for this go they're, they're huge right as well as sort of improving the function through uh neurostimulation in a way that uh might uh, make it easier for people to learn things or might improve their creativity on a short-term basis it also means if you know we're also these things have implications for treating people with brain injuries of different types right to restore them to a sort of what you one would consider normal function now of course there's also the possibility of human beings overclocking their brains to uh previously unachievable levels but I don't want to like push this too far down the uh the kind of evil scientist rabbit hole yet, because I realise that's how supervillains are made. But it is really exciting and we don't know all the implications of this. Now my daughter Suki has been taking part in uh, neuroscience research at the at UEA at the University of East Anglia, so this is a particularly interesting area for me because I've got to go in and, and watch in the lab as she is um hooked up there studying the development in sort of like children of Um, working visual memory so she's had these like great octopus like skull caps put on her that measure blood flow flow through her um, through the upper part of her brain and then sort of like a a little screen that's uh, tracing her eye movement in response to different images and all of these things you know the, the the effects that they may have in sort of 10 20 years the discoveries that they allow are they're huge, right? Because being creative, you know, they may have um, applications in mental health. They may have applications right across the board. Like, it's, I'm, you can tell, right, I'm so excited. I actually don't want to get in your way anymore so you can listen to Adam talk about it. Um, and there are some direct implications for writers. And as Adam says, he does advise that you don't go and sort of try to build one of these machines in your garage which is you know on a you know is theoretically possible but when it comes to like applying electricity directly to your brain probably not advisable to just gamble on the basis that you might get it right um but these things are going to are starting to come to market already this technology um and so it is a brave new frontier in the arts And I'm just so thrilled that this is the kind of writing show where some weeks we talk about modal verbs and uh, we talk about adverbs and we talk about what's a good first sentence. And some weeks we talk about, is it possible to pass a current through the brain that would help you solve plot problems using some kind of of, uh, apparatus developed in a lab? This is the world we live in, and it makes me feel really excited to be able to share sort of Adam's um, uh, research with you, and also just give him a platform to reach lots of writers because this is, you know, part of our jobs. I'm not going to go on any longer, except to say if you enjoy the show and you want to support it, then you can um, go and buy my book, the Ice, the the Honors, or the Ice House. That my two books they're in two in a series. Um, I'll put links in the show notes, or you can support the show. Um, through my coffee page, K O Fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. Drop a few beans in that just helps me cover hosting costs. It's not sponsored the show, so that's the only way I uh, uh, get uh support to be able to continue it. And thank you everyone who has done so. I should also say, um, Adam in the show mentions his sister, um, Leah, who uh is a poet and has just um she she's got a new book of poetry coming out and she's not she's not just like she's not just any poet and i'm not saying that not all poets aren't valuable but um she is um well you you will hear him say but um she's just um, received uh, a pretty prestigious um, award the uh, Walt Whitman Award uh, of the Academy of American Poets so um, she's got this uh, collection coming out the more extravagant feast so if you enjoy what you hear from Adam and you'd like to sort of support him and support his sister um, then there's a link in the show notes where you can go to pre-order her new collection of poetry a great example of uh, the fruits of creativity right I'll get out of your way. Thank you for tolerating me this long and my incredible enthusiasm. Here's my interview with neuroscientist Adam Green. Um, So let's just dive straight in with a couple of uh, big questions. Um, It would be really good to set our terms. What's your definition of creativity?
1: Hmm, What's my definition of creativity? Well, you know, it's a fun question to think about. And so, as you know, um, I am now uh, serving as president of the Society for the Neuroscience of Creativity. And what we're doing, uh, one of our, probably our, our single biggest initiative, uh, where we're trying to get together you know, the 400 or 500 people who spend really all their waking and some of their sleeping hours uh, sort of puzzling over, over creativity, together um, to determine sort of as a group what do we think creativity means? And the answer, the closer you look at it, uh, sort of the blurrier it gets. But we've decided to lean into that, to, to embrace that, and to actually think of creativity instead of as something that you could just you know encapsulate in the if we could only find those few you know write three words or write you know, write <laughs> sentence or something like that. It, 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 it never was that. You know we pretend that anything that we happen to have a word for, um, has a real meaning uh, has a real sort of definite and discrete meaning out there in the real world uh, and and we're failing because we can't um, yet you know sort of put it in in that little packet of words I think that it's it's that assumption is a, is a fallacy we've got lots of words for things like dragons and you know magic and, and things like that that uh, we can say the words but it doesn't mean that the universe uh, then has to you know hand that over as a real thing to us so I think what we have to if we're going to make progress, uh, I think the best way to think about uh, creativity or really any um, any construct is as kind of a, a space. Uh, and in that space, you have lots of different elements, and those elements interact with each other. And one of the things that we're doing, um, in, as I say, as, as, as an initiative at uh, SFNC, the Society for the Neuroscience of Creativity, is trying to build that space based on the meanings of the relevant constructs, the relevant sub-constructs, the, the elements of creativity in the minds of creativity researchers. So we're calling this the uh, Creativity Ontology Project. And the initial stage, as I say, is going to be focused on researchers. Um, the ultimate idea is to look at how researchers' ideas of what creativity means and what the what this space, uh, sort of the shape of this space, um, how that relates to how the broader public uh, has this space represented in, in their heads, um, and uh, even artists and and others. Uh, so, uh, but to, to give you a bit more sense of, uh, of of and and this really is this is a long winded answer. But I feel like the only answer to a question like this is is a long winded one. Um, what we're doing and what we've done is is uh, initially to generate. Uh, a survey, which I'd be happy to share with you. But but it actually has these fun tasks. You've got these circles uh, and you can move them to overlap with each other. And they represent different things like divergence and insight and things that people talk about um, and think about and study in relation to creativity. Well, how similar or how different are they really to each other? What do they have to do with each other? How, in a sort of uh, fancy um, statistical approach called a, a, a dissimilarity matrix, can we understand this multidimensional space that is creativity? And then, at the neural level, can we look at studies that have been done on each of these constructs, studies on divergence, studies on insight, and look at how the neural activity is different and similar across these different these different subconstructs these different elements of creativity and essentially what we ultimately want to be able to do for the field is not say okay we've carried this tablet down from on high, you know from on high and so this this really is the meaning of creativity but to say okay if this is what we mean by creativity based on how we've sort of moved these circles to overlap with each other how can we identify a set of tasks that essentially elicits activity in the brain that represents that similarity space are there tasks that we're using that actually aren't reflecting what we want these constructs to mean and how we we think they relate to each other so at no point in there are we assuming there's a ground truth right because i think that's that that is a fallacy but i think what we can do is say here's what we as as a field, understand creativity to be. Here's how we how here's how we see the shape of this of this space. And then we can identify tasks, which as scientists, that's, that's what it really comes down to, is the task you use to measure a thing is its meaning, right? Is its definition. And so uh, can we identify a set of tasks that best represents this space? Um, so that that's uh, that, that's probably more of an answer that, than you were asking for uh, but that's the uh, that's the most productive approach we've been able to identify so far No
0: if I, it, I no I, I love that Adam because I think it's and you know I think part of creativity and part of scientific inquiry and part of the whole reason we're talking is to complicate something that is very easy actually to be very pat about. A lot of authors I talk to have got a stock answer for what is creativity, how do you write a story, where do you get your ideas from. They've got a funny, quick answer that can make an audience laugh, and I understand why they've got it right. You get asked the questions a lot, and you want to entertain people more than you want to tell people the truth, which is sometimes, like, it's complicated. But what I get from that, and, you know, I'm just trying to restate this to make sure I understand is that there may be different tasks that we habitually think of as being creative, like doing a painting, doing writing, that actually for different people at different times may be less or more creative. And so what you're almost trying to do is to kind of take a... By doing all these comparisons, you're kind of triangulating mm-hmm. points, looking at this space that it exists within, and then almost taking like, if I can mix my metaphors, taking a crucible and trying to like bubble it down to this thing that mm-hmm. is a creative act that you can then measure and get kind of like a pure little bit of creativity dust that you can start measuring. Is that... Well, I, I you I think you were you were right up until oh. <laughs> uh,
1: you got us boiling it down in the crucible because I think actually what we're trying to do is avoid that. We're trying to suggest the, the, the somewhat um, inconvenient idea that the definition is the space is the broad space um, and that uh, if, if you're if you're boiling it down um, you are sort of making assumptions that at, at least so far don't seem to be supported so and, and again you your the, the basic assumption would be that there is somehow this underlying kernel or you know underlying pith uh, that is uh, creativity, if you if you really could just boil it down, and I think again, you know, as somebody who thinks about words, and, and I'm I'm talking about you here, uh, as, as as my understanding, you know, I think words run us into lots of they're tremendously useful, you know, where would we be without them? But they but they run us into some some problems uh, when we when we do think that well, because we have this pithy word for something that there's a pithy meaning out there, um, and so that's that's what we. Uh, are try you know we're we're stuck with this word creativity, um, and uh, and that's fine as long as we understand it. I think as this um, kind of uh, a- a- amorphous thing, a- but well, not amorphous actually, uh, having a shape, um, but having a complicated shape um, and having a shape that actually changes. Uh, over the course of history, right? What, what people have considered to be creative has changed uh, over the course of, of human history and will continue to change. Um, and so I think if we if we think about it as a broad and dynamic space um, and we try to understand the elements of that space and how they relate to each other to get the overall contour, um, that can be more useful, I think both in service to Sort of the truth, the ultimate truth of uh, of the matter, which is that it, there's not something pithy out there, but also in service to the science, which hopefully is related to the truth. That's what we all like to like to believe, anyway, um, because it makes this uh, more operationalizable, meaning that we will be able to come up with tasks to measure uh, elements of creativity and stop pretending that there's one task that's going to measure all of creativity. Um, and there's, I would add to that, just to echo actually something you 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 said. Um, and I'm, this is something I, I put into a, a review paper a little while ago, but that actually just, you know, it's probably more productive for researchers to to study uh, things that are creative than to try to identify the process that is creativity. So think, which is basically to say, um, many things are creative, and that doesn't mean that that any sort of one um, sort of crux of things is creative. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's Yeah,
0: useful. no, it, it is. I, I, I'm and a lot of, a lot of it, you know and i'm just you know i'm i'm processing a lot of that and i i'm i'm getting the There's this, I can really understand that there's this desire and I have it as much, you know, I want as easy answers as much as the next guy. Right, we are. Yeah, and and I would, would, you know, I'd love there to be like a little creativity node and then like, uh, and then just a sort of bipolar scale of creativity and there's just one slider Mm -hmm. and you're either more or less Mm -hmm. and there's no, nothing. That would be super um, convenient. But if if creativity (laughs) is a series of sort of, trying to locate creativity it, that actually may be a sort of emergent property of many acts. Um, it's, it, you know, it's a little bit, it, it may be, redu- I can understand how it's a bit reductive and also uh, ultimately kind of like nonsensical at some level that you're that, that, that it's this abstract description of multiple events and then, an, and it's simultaneously um, an evaluation of those events and, yeah. and, and it's doing right. so many different things that to try and just go okay where is this one where is this one thing where someone's more or less creative um, I, I, mm. I I, I, get get that up can you just break that? but just to make it if not more concrete then to go into this kind of landscape that you're just dis- and tell us a bit of the geography of it can you talk about yes. a few elements of creativity or a few things yeah
1: absolutely and i think it's a it's a really good point um that you're making and i think it's related to something that uh those of us who study uh creativity in the brain in particular try to try to emphasize which is that it's not actually made of this sort of separate fairy dust stuff that that the rest of our cognitive um processes you know, uh, aren't also part of. So essentially, you're. It's a way of using the tools that we use for all the other things that we do. Um, it's not. It's not in some way, you know, qualitatively um, or um, sort of materially uh, with respect to the brain, uh, distinct from uh, the rest of cognition. And that doesn't mean. Um, that there, that it isn't meaningfully distinct. It just it just means that it's not its own separate uh, thing that that um, brains spend partic- you know just separate uh, resources and separate real estate on. Um, as with any skill, uh, you know there are people who are better at it and worse at it. And as you say, it emerges from. Um, complex use of of the things that are that our brains have available to them. Um, so if so, for example, things like memory are very important for creativity. Um, things like uh, flexibility um, and attention uh, and focus. These things are all important for creativity. They're important for a lot of other things as well. Uh, and so I think the the model of creativity that makes uh, the most sense, uh, at least from the neuroscience perspective, is that it's a way of using tools that we have that are sort of multipurpose tools, um, as opposed to being its own separate tool. Um, so I, I, that, that may be uh, somewhat useful, but then, as you say, it's also got many stages and sort of many faces. Uh, and so evaluation and generation uh, are studied distinctly and and are meaningfully different. Um, And so which one of those is creativity? Well, they're they're both part of creativity. Um, It involves uh, being divergent in the sense of coming up with weird stuff that nobody's thought of before. Um, But it also involves being convergent in the sense of choosing which of those things that you're, uh, you know, Pondering, or, or sort of uh, that that your sort of wellspring of ideas uh, is presenting, uh, choosing which of those things actually uh, is most meaningful, or mo- most uh, most useful, or most valuable, depending on the context. Um, and and again, just again to emphasize this idea that it's it's a broad and, and complex search space, or, or sorry, broad and complex uh, semantic space, I should say. Um, and so, what we want to try to do then, uh, as scientists, is Uh, identify tasks for each of those um, elements right try to boil down at least the elements to things that we can we can get our our hands around Um, and then think about studying an element of creativity rather than studying creativity with each of our studies but once we understand um, where that element fits into the broader space we know how any
0: particular study is informing the whole uh, of creativity so I've got, I'm really glad you brought up a couple of things there because I want to ask you about them. And then I'm going to sort of jump into maybe some of the neuroscience side of things. But could you give us a work? You talked about divergent and convergent thinking, and those seem to be two quite interesting areas that maybe a few people listening won't um, be familiar with. So I wondered if you could just sort of break down what you mean by that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So divergence, um, purely... Um, is just being very different from uh, other other people, um, and so there are lots of manifestations of divergence. And in general, um, people consider divergence uh, to be important for creativity, but really not on its own uh, a sufficient for uh, meaningful or or for for the kind of creativity um, that gets us places. Uh, Again, I I sort of hesitate to build fences around um, the definition of of creativity. If somebody thinks just being weird is creative, well, you know, great, good on you. But uh, the notion that, and this has come up actually in the context of discussions on mental illness, actually, and schizophrenia. So the idea that uh, people with schizophrenia will sometimes generate these fascinatingly divergent thoughts. Um, they'll say something like, "Well, that painting has a headache," and 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 wow, you know. But what does that mean, right? And what does it even mean to them, right? And and that's a that's a debatable point, right? Um, as a writer, and you know, my, my sister uh, is a poet uh, who I'm gonna I'll I'll just plug. Uh, you do, know, just yeah. uh, received the the Walt Whitman uh, Award from the uh, Society of American Poets, which is. The, the biggest prize there is for a first book of poetry amazing. um and she it, it's it's fascinating it's 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 terrific i'm so so happy for her and and it's so well deserved but you know we talk about um the process to some extent and how you know there are different levels of uh divergence um that are part of her process uh some things some ways of saying things are just weird uh and they don't necessarily mean anything even to her some some uh some sort of levels of divergence um would be there's a sense in which they would be true for her but uninterpretable for anybody else um and then there's a level of divergence that has converged to a point where i can say this in a way that is not uh cliche right that is quite different uh from how other people might have described you know, this same experience of, of joy or loss or whatever it is, um, but is also interpretable, meaningful uh, to others, and therefore sort of achieves my purpose of communication. Um, and so uh, the notion of pure divergence, unconstrained by any such considerations, or perhaps, you know, even in the context of schizophrenia, is is often considered to be um, beyond the pale, uh, to the extent that uh, it's not of interest to most creativity researchers. Again, I would I would stop uh, at you know saying uh, I, I would hesitate to say no one should consider that creativity. I, I don't think any of us should you know can, can tell anyone else what they ought to think creativity is. But I think uh, what creativity researchers anyway um, are interested in studying is some is is a some product that includes um, divergence, coming up with lots of possibilities. Um, and convergence, narrowing it down to the best uh, options, the most meaningful, the most valuable, um, the most insightful options. So we've talked about sometimes having a uh, a big menu and a discerning palette.
0: That, a big menu and a discerning palette, that's fast. Right, okay, so, because what I'm thinking immediately when you're talking about that, all these ideas are shooting off, the idea that you could just design a bot that just comes out with sort of random strings of words, and that would be based a, a press, you know, when compared against, you know, English, standard English syntax, it would create divergent sentences, right? It would create things. It could say "egg spanner, <laughs> exactly. grenade. And that would be, that's a, that would be that divergent. Is, you know, wrong. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But the uh, the question is when, then what's the instrumentality of that? What's the utility right. of it? Why are we putting those three things together now? You know, as a, you know, as a creative person, if I see those three words together, I go, this is an error, like, or at some level, you know, and this, but I don't know, like, uh, the example I give is like, my I was playing with my daughter, uh, she's two years old, and we were playing with her toys, and she like walked to, ca... she had a little farmhouse, and she walked the cow up the stairs and put it in the bed, mm. and I wanted to say, no, no, that's where the man <laughs> sleeps, and then I was like, actually, this is a much more interesting story, But crucially, it was within these two bounds of this is like a living. Mm -hmm. She wasn't like putting the bed um, in sort of like, below the stairs not a very interesting divergence right. it was something where the farmer was going to come home and say hey what's going right. on here <laughs> like you know <laughs> there was a divergence that still followed some rules and then broke away from yeah. others so is that kind of the thing i mean it's not literally the thing you're talking about but is that the sort of thing you're talking about very much about? so yes
1: um and so uh I-, I think that you know well so i've got a 2 year old also uh and so i get to see a, a lot of that playing out um, and and some of the things that they will generate are just they're miracles like you, you, I couldn't have thought of that right I can't I can't think of that anymore right There was a time when I when I could have been that divergent and now, and now I can't be. Um, but the process of you know also some of the things my two-year- old suggests, uh, particularly when it gets to be snack time, uh, don't don't really make any sense in the real world. So um, I think that uh, that combination of uh, divergence um, with uh, meaningful constraint, meaningful selection, meaningful filtering um, is what uh, is, is often thought of as leading to sort of the the best or most interesting uh, forms of, of creativity. Um, and we've got different ways of, of of studying that, and none of them are none of them is perfect. But yeah, sorry, go ahead.
0: Oh, I was just going to say, I was what because this then the way we're talking about that this that two year olds seem. Um, more creative in many ways than adults and you talked about it being lost and one of the conventional explanations that I hear and I'm not saying it's not true it's just one that I it's a kind of a naive one that comes from people's hunches is that what happens is we are children and we're kind of free and then we go into society or we go into schools and they teach us rules and we're sort of constrained by People who don't want us to think because society wants to shut that down because imagination is bad. <laughs> um, I've, I've like I've never actually directly ex- conscious of experiencing that, but I, is is that you know my daughter's actually just started saying I don't know in answer yeah. to things rather than just guessing, mm. and I wonder is is that a socialised thing or is there some kind of uh, neurocognitive. Um, I'm going to just throw out terms like neurocognitive as if I know whether that's I'm a, using that's them a pro- real word. Probably. Cool. Yeah. Um, is is that a developmental thing? Sure. You know, is there part of the prefrontal cortex that is is restraining things, or is it just because just we're scared that our friends are going to go? What are you talking about? Well, those
1: are the same thing, right? So that, that being, oh. being able to be scared that your friends are going to say that uh, come is because of the development of, as you say, in, in many in many instances, prefrontal uh, development that that give us this sort of uh, top down uh, social cognition, uh, top down sort of understanding of rules and constraints. So yeah, those are two ways of, of saying the same thing, and they and, and and it's and it's the right thing in in. Uh, at least, yes, one meaningful sense. But I think um, the idea is that um, we... I, the, and where I would, would just sort of uh, revise the wording a little bit is that is the notion that, okay, we become less creative. Well, we do probably become less divergent. Um, I don't know on balance that that makes us less creative in, in meaningful ways or that it has to, because I think many of us... Uh, you know, uh, hold on to a lot of our, uh, our, our childlike uh, divergence um, and uh, lose some of it, for sure, um, but uh, manage to, to carry enough of it with us um, to have these sort of mischievous, interesting ideas, uh, and yet be able to shape those in ways that, um, you know, you get to, to do a real job uh, in the real world or, yeah. or say things that might mean something to other people. Uh, in the real world. So I don't know. I, I think we become differently creative, but uh, on balance, probably uh, more meaningfully creative uh, as we grow, or at least we can. Um, you know, we brought up kids. You also brought up uh, bots, right? And, and I think that's actually uh, an interesting thing to consider as we move forward, uh, both in sort of uh, society and in, and in science, um, that you know, machines now are better than, brain, uh, than brains at, at lots of things. Um, and so to some extent, as that changes, the value of the human brain changes. I, I don't know that it, uh, on balance, has to be greatly diminished, but it does change because many of the things, you know, uh, my, my grandfather had a prodigious memory. Uh, he was a lawyer. He could remember case law. You know, in, it was fascinated people. He was at the top of his class in Yale Law School, and you know, uh, was uh, did tremendous uh, pro bono work. The thing that made one of the things that made him so effective was just this memory he had. Um, well, now uh, someone with the the memory of my grandfather is far less. Uh, not maybe not less unusual, but but that is a less valuable tool because everybody's got Google Scholar. Everybody's got you know uh, machines that are their memory. Uh, and so that skill uh, is less differentiating, is less sort of value added um, as something that the human brain uh, can contribute. But creativity, emerges more and more as the thing that uh, AI is not doing well, is not doing nearly at uh, human levels, and and doesn't really have prospects for doing um, at human levels. And so I think as we we move forward, uh, there will be more and more value uh, placed on creativity and on fostering creativity in uh, education um, and uh, sort of valuing uh, the creative types Um, Because most of the rest of what we're good at, um, on on you know in in the current uh, landscape, we're really not that good at anymore.
0: Can I ask a couple of things about? Maybe I'm sort of jumping ahead, to too far. But actually, I I I think you you mentioned memory flexibility and attention as three traits that are, I guess. associated with or that you, you, you sort of see as being part of creative processes um and i you know i think like what a lot of people listening will be wanting to know and i'm using them as a foil as an excuse to ask myself um uh what are i mean does that mean if we simply improve our memory or flexibility? or mental or attention we will automatically become more creative or is there something more going on right this is an old this is a
1: old and important no less relevant now that than you know it, because it's old it doesn't make it any less relevant uh type of question in, in uh creativity science but i think the answer is uh some of both so uh, the resources that we have, at least some resources, like what's called crystallized um, uh, intelligence, which is to say, what do you what do you know? What are the things that you actually have stored in sort of crystallized ways? Um, so memory, um, those kinds of resources help us to a point uh, to be creative, but there's a point beyond which um, having more uh, of that resource doesn't really help you be more creative. Um, there are other uh, resources, things like flexibility um, and flexibilities related to attention. But again, this is sort of a broad search space where things are, a broad space where things are overlapping, but somewhat distinct. Um, and then the ability, and this is something that we've studied in our lab, the ability to integrate uh, different pieces of uh, information. So it's not just that you have the information, but it's how you put them together, how, how you put the different pieces together, how flexibly, uh, how fluidly, um, how readily you can do um, that sort of integration and recombination uh, that determines a lot of, uh, of creative ability. Um, and we do that for things that we don't generally consider creative, like planning and, and problem solving outside of creative context, which again, some people might consider uh, being a very good planner to be uh, you know, a creative thing. Others might not, just to make the point that it's not um, special real estate for um, the arts or, or you know, something like that. Um, so the idea is, uh, that depending on the resource you're talking about, there seem to be some resources that help us up to a point that, you know, um, having a better set of tools will make you a better carpenter, um, but only up to a point, right? Because there, are, yeah. there, there are certain people who are just better carpenters based on the other, uh, sort of things that they're bringing into the job. Um, and you know, if they continue to have better and better tools, that doesn't really, Uh, that's not going to be what's going to make most of the difference. Um, So something like memory, I think, would fit in that category. Something like uh, flexibility and attention, I think, would tend to fit into the other category, and particularly to the extent that you're talking about being able to flexibly integrate pieces of information that might fit into the other category where essentially the more of it you have, the more creative you're likely to be.
0: So, okay, so here's me, I think, integrating a piece of, uh, information and seeing how this fits and this is just because of the people I've been chatting to I was chatting to a guy who did his PhD in the history of magic recently wow um talked to him on the, and he was talking about the history of alchemy being that That's in, in alchemy mm. in alchemy whenever you learn something new a process to change one base metal into another thing or whatever the idea is that because in alchemy everything is part of the universe whenever you learn one thing you you're under you've learned something about the universe and you can then you then whenever you try to learn something else your knowledge is increased because you now have this new paradigm to look at other things so are you, are you're I, I, that's what i sort of got partially from what you're saying that that, um, that ability to take knowledge from one area like oh this is how say the engine of a ship works and apply that in another situation Mm -hmm. when you're trying to i don't know fix a squeaky hinge on a door or get a team to run smoothly and your brain uses one paradigm as a kind of metaphor to reorganize a uh, completely distinct or only semi-related piece of information. Is that sort of one of the skills you're talking you about?
1: You said it, Tim, yeah. And and actually, that is something that our lab in particular has been very interested in studying over the last decade or so is this notion of analogical creativity. So uh, creative reasoning in the form of analogy. So uh, I know this one thing, I have to solve this new problem. Or uh, I see these two things um, out of a broader set of 100 things. And I find those two things that fit together to make a meaningful analogy or, and to bring this back to, uh, to more sort of uh, a writerly space, um, it, the, a, a meaningful metaphor, right, that, that I can yes. describe this emotion, this experience based on something, you know, really tangible, you know, the, the feel of a cold spoon or something like that, you know, that, that is going to convey that emotion. It's not the emotion itself. Um, but but it, it is a metaphor which essentially uh, boils down to, if you, if, if you want to make metaphors much more boring and sort <laughs> of figure out sort of the information structure, they, they boil down to analogies, which is to say uh, that the, the relation between things on one side of the analogy fits the relation between things on the other side, even if the things themselves don't look or feel or sound or smell like each other. Um, and that's something that really does seem to be uh, one of the main engines for creativity in the arts, certainly in writing, um, but even in, in industry and science. If you look at, you know, there's sort of books and books on these breakthroughs that people have made in science. Steve Jobs and other people, you know, talk about this in, in industry, you know, where, where do these really good ideas come from? Well, they come from in many cases, uh, putting together elements that uh, of knowledge that seem very far apart, and so one of the things that that my lab studies is this notion of connection across semantic distance. Uh, this idea of uh, things seeming different, so therefore having semantic distance, um, but actually at an underlying level being meaningfully similar, and the ability to put those things together is a is a hallmark of creative thinking. Um, and one of the things also that we've been able to look at with that, which I think is, is encouraging and, again, sort of adds to the, the complex landscape of creativity, is the notion of creativity, <clears throat> and in this case, uh, creative reasoning across semantic distance, making these connections, just as you described, um, being something that's actually fairly dynamic. So I think uh, one thing that's imp- maybe useful uh, for, for folks to understand about the history of creativity research is that it has often followed the intelligence research and the intelligence research has often said, well, you get a score, you know, this is how intelligent you are. You get this number, you take this test, you get this number. Uh, Somebody else takes takes the test and they get another number. Um, And then that's just, you know, yours. And and it's just, you know, uh, sewn to your chest for for however long, you know, uh, as a static trait. But one of the things that is happening now in creativity research, which is really encouraging and I think a lot more useful <laughs> than just knowing what your number is, is the study yeah. of creativity as as a state, as a dynamic state. Uh, and I think this is something that's exciting um, and that we've all sort of experienced. So it's puzzling that the research has been, to some extent, uh, a bit behind um, the common experience on this. Uh, not to say that no one's ever looked at this, but it's really just kind of picked up steam more recently, the notion that um, sometimes even the most creative people are thinking about very mundane things and thinking in very mundane ways. Uh, And sometimes otherwise very mundane people have very creative ideas. Um, And so creativity doesn't function as this sort of one static number. It functions uh, as something dynamic, um, across time within an individual's life, and, and, and it changes based on context. Um, and one of the things that's been really exciting in creativity neuroscience is to look at sort of what happens? What, what are your creative juices made of? You know, people have these, because this is part of the the common experience, we have these terms in the parlance, like, well, get your creative juices flowing or put your thinking cap on. Well, you know, that's made of stuff in the brain. That's the renewably radical thing about being a neuroscientist in any field is that all of these things that feel so, uh, so sort of ephemeral, ephemeral and, 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 and evanescent, they're made of stuff. And that, you know, to many of us is actually more beautiful than the notion of, sort of a, a non-reductive magic explanation. The notion that, that these fascinating, beautiful, soulful things can be built um, of human, uh, of human material uh, is, is, is even more fascinating, more aesthetic, uh, it's maybe a separate point. But the notion that we can watch what happens as people think go from thinking less creatively to more creatively and understand how the brain accomplishes that. And then, and this is where it gets very cool, it's not just for our own edification that we would be observing that change. We can then apply that knowledge to help people think more creatively. And in particular, our lab and other labs have, because of uh, about 10 years of observing changes in creative state, been able to identify targets in the brain that can be helped along with safe amounts of electrical current um, so what we call, you know, it's a very technical term, brain zapping, um, with uh, transcranial direct current stimulation, and there are other methods as well, where you can essentially say, okay, if we see that the ability to ramp up activity in this part of the brain is predicting how much more creative people become when they when they try to think more creatively, well, then we could say, well, what if we make it easier? What if we facilitate that ramping up in that particular part of the brain, and then we ask people to think more creatively. And what we found is that it works; is that people get to higher reaches of their creative potential uh, when we zap the brain in these very sort of uh, targeted ways. Um, so I think, to some extent, uh, I mean, to some extent, that's just that's just plain exciting. Uh, and to some extent, it, it sort of shows where there is a nexus between kind of observational and and, and applied. Uh, research, which is important, I think, for some people who may be skeptics of, well, why study the brain at all? Right? We we uh, we have these experiences, we do these things. If we can describe them or write them down, like who cares? Well, that description, that ability to understand these things in detail, where they happen, uh, their time course, the, the connectivity between regions, that's something we can leverage to actually help people do these things. And in the, in the case of creativity, which I know you and I are both interested in, uh, that's especially exciting. Well,
0: I've- see this is the thing adam that i really i'm so glad you brought this up because now i'm the questions that i want to ask are what regions uh, what are these regions that you are targeting with electric current and is it all stimulation or are there some areas of the brain that you want to quieten? you know are there any bits that are sort of executives that you need that it can be because i mean like a classic thing in Um, creative writing literature has been this idea i think it was like 1934 35 in becoming a writer this theory that there are two writing modes or there are you're training two writers Mm. and one is the kind of the creative one that just comes up with ideas that generates ideas and then the second is this kind of like executive Mm. mode that then comes in and edits and is this kind of uh balancing force that, that says, okay, thanks for the shortlist, but now I'm going to get rid of all this stuff that is too divergent and I'm going to, so I was just wondering, is it all, what areas and um is it all boosting or are there some bits that benefit from being sort of, um I don't want to use suppressed because that sounds sinister, no, but just quiet. Yeah, no,
1: it's not. It doesn't sound sinister to me because uh, suppression is a term that we, we use in, in, in the brain or or inhibit uh, inhibition. Um and you're, I think this is a is, is a very um, uh, inf- well-informed question. I, I think a lot of people don't consider that aspect of it. And I think one of the things to say about uh, the research that's, that's being done on this is that it has to be informed by those considerations because more is not always better in the brain. So there are complex interactions between different regions for any task. Um, where they uh, inhibit and disinhibit and um, uh, sort of su- support act- activation across, across regions. So you're, you're getting into this, this complicated dynamic. Like, you know, imagine a group of any, you know, 40 people talking to each other. You know, having all of them talk more <laughs> is not going to lead uh, to, to anywhere good. Um, so uh, that's why, actually, it's so important to have studied Uh, the different sort of contributions of different regions, the network dynamics of of these regions, um, because to some extent, our tools are somewhat crude. So we need to, for example, in the work that that we've done so far, we were really focused on identifying a region that we could uh, stimulate, that we could facilitate, in which not only is it the case that more is better, but that changes from less to more over relatively brief or acute periods uh, are associated with um, changes in in performance. Um, And so the region that we've uh, primarily focused on, although our research is now expanding out from here, uh, is a region at the far front of your brain um, called frontopolar cortex uh, primarily uh, based on, on the work that we had done with functional magnetic resonance imaging, uh, brain scanning, uh, primarily on the left side, um, that's been associated with these increases in creative thinking um, when people try to think more creatively, especially in the context of this creative analogical reasoning. Um, and so what we found, again, there is that in this one case, this isn't always the case, exactly as you, as you suspect, in this case, more seems to be better. More seems to be more activity seems to be predictive of, of better performance, um, and that change from less to more over a relatively acute period of time is predictive of these changes in dynamic state creativity. If we were just to start zapping lots of places involved in creativity, because creativity happens, you know, in a broad network uh, across the brain, and, and that network changes based on the particular task. Um, you would get all sorts of unpredictable things happening, uh, and certainly not all of them would facilitate or help help creativity. Um, so, right, frontopolar cortex uh, is, is a region, uh, to answer your question, uh, That certainly not the only region, but related to some of what we had talked about earlier, it's a region that seems to be very involved with integrating different pieces of semantic information not only when people are doing creativity tasks when people do sort of economic decision-making tasks, uh, this region is integrating the different pieces of information that they have to consider. Uh, but this uh, integrator um, seems to uh, certainly be important for the kind of creativity that we care about and uh, greater activity and, and increases, it sort of acute increases in activity um, presented a pretty clear hypothesis for, well, if we can help this region along, maybe we can uh, improve this, this kind of creativity. Certainly, as I say, it's not the only region involved. You've got um, all the, the regions where the semantic representations live and are stored. You've got different regions that are important for attention. Um, you've got other regions. Uh, there's been a lot of work recently on uh, an area of the, well, a set of areas of the brain that's sort of loosely referred to as the default mode uh, network where um, essentially all we know about that region – all we solidly know about that region is that the, the, the harder you're thinking, <laughs> the more effortful the cognition, the less the activity in that region. And there are a few explanations for what might drive that, actually. Um, but one of the things that has been observed is that um, activity in that region, but also connectivity of that region to other more uh, prefrontal areas, um, areas in uh, temporal and parietal cortices um, have been uh, a, you know, that that individual differences in that connectivity have been tied to individual differences in creativity. So one of the things that we are actually interested in expanding to now is not just zapping of individual regions, but actually trying to facilitate communication between regions. And then there and there are tools that allow us, again, in fairly crude ways. Um, to do that between uh, areas or, or between sort of sub-networks um, that are involved in creativity. So uh, we'll, we are now ramping up a study where we're using uh, transcranial alternating current to sort of uh, get essentially all these regions on the same uh, wavelength, uh, basically on, on, uh, to entrain a certain um, frequency um, that we can use to couple. Uh, these different regions together so that their communication is better to say, okay, uh, if we think of creativity as a network, one thing you can do is facilitate uh, a a particularly valuable node in that network where we think more is better. But another thing you could do is to actually facilitate communication across the network. Um, So that's one of the the things we're trying. But again, all of that comes out of observation, right? You have to observe how and where this is all happening. And once you've got a pretty good handle on that, you can test these ways of, of boosting it.
0: Yeah, I mean yeah that, I mean that's I suppose that's the ethical way of doing it you could, <laughs> if you weren't, if only you went if any didn't have these ethics and you know human welfare right. to care about you could have just gone you, in. you
1: could but um, you'd probably waste a lot of time even just from a coldly you know pragmatic standpoint
0: but so so just because I this is what really interesting to me because I have I suspect I haven't had my brain scanned yet my daughter actually had an MRI scan she's part of a um a research study on brain development at the moment. Last week, so oh, I got to see it being done last week. Um, but I suspect I I have a uh, an anxiety disorder. I have a panic disorder. I suspect I have a hugely overactive amygdala <laughs> and an intense amygdala volume mm. that would um the baffle and appall neuroscientists. Um, and also I'm a you know I'm a writer and I so I've, you know it, things about brains. This is one of the reasons I sort of started on this whole. Uh, I, I won't glorify it as a quest, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm I'm really interested because you talk about the default mode network. Now that is associated with things like daydreaming, sure. I yes. assume, Mind Because you said this yeah. lack of focus. But at the same time, my understanding is that time spent in the default mode network is also associated with people who are, spend more time in it tends to be more depressed. Remaining. It might be yes. associated with kind of like rumination, yeah. which I've talked to with a couple of other uh, social psychologists and neuroscientists about. So. The issue is, because, again, you talked about right at the beginning about schizophrenia Mm -hmm. being associated Mm -hmm. with divergent thinking. Uh I would like to be less anxious Mm -hmm. and I would like to be a happier, more focused person. At the same time, Mm -hmm. there has often been talk of correlations between elements of Mm -hmm. um, mental illness Mm -hmm. and creativity or artisticness. Now that has largely been sort of anecdotal Mm -hmm. in the past or when it's discussed in the arts, it's really people just going, look at this, look at Victoria, uh, look at uh, Virginia Woolf. She was ill. But, But you're saying that spending time in the default mode network increases creativity and the stronger the links between the better it can talk to each other. I guess when, just to explain to people when you're talking about that, you're talking about the, I guess, conductivity, between yeah, the different exactly. parts that's is that right right so the signals can move quicker right. and that's what the electric current does but at the same time it's associated with rumination it's associated so
1: yeah the brain never gives finally- with both hands you know and, and I think that that's um, a, a really interesting thing is, is that you it's it's really largely about balance and I think you know so there are elements at the neural level that are shared across creative people and people uh, who you know, are on various sort of, at various diagnosable levels of, of, of various spectra. And I think the fact that mental illness um, is, you know, exists along uh, various spectra is, is a really important point to, to sort of keep in mind, um, as does creativity, and they're all working with the same neural real estate. And so it's not ultimately that surprising that you should see some things that are uh, sort of shared across them Um, and that, you know, if you, I think if you were to say, well, okay, people who are high, who are high in schizotypy or who are schizophrenic, you know, show a lot of uh, default mode uh, activity. And then you could say, well, people who are creative also show a lot of, uh, you know, sort of differences in in default mode activity or or connectivity. Um, Well, those two things could happen without, schizophrenia being sort of the pathway to creativity, right? You could imagine people who share the right amounts of things in common or the right types of things in common with uh, different uh, clinical populations, but not too much, right? And they also balance that with other things uh, that are not shared in common uh, with those populations. And then some of the people in those populations will have enough of the other elements, the more constraining elements, that they can produce really beautiful, uh, you know, terrifically creative uh, products. And so the story is just never as simple as, as as we'd like it to be. And I think, you know, as a neuroscientist, again, this is one of the constantly fascinating things: is the the brain trying to study itself, and the brain is in many in many ways, um, too, you know, too elusive and too complicated for itself. Um, but uh, but we make progress. We make progress slowly, and it's it's one of the things that's. You know that keeps us all employed is that there's so much that's not known, um, so we get to keep asking these these fun questions. Um, but maybe I, sort of the last thing I'll say on that is that um, there are there's good evidence for lots of ways to be creative. And one one sort of uh, sort of binary there is, it is valid to be creative by accident where you get this sort of bolt out of the blue, which a lot of artists will describe, and they'll say, well, I'm sort of just a conduit for this, and I don't, you know, this just sort of comes through me. Um, it's entirely, val- people do get terrific ideas without consciously um, thinking about them. Now, there's a lot going on in the brain, even if you're not consciously thinking about it. But it's also very valid to be creative on purpose. So to say, okay, I need to, I need to write a joke for this person's retirement party, or I need to mm. write a brand, yeah. or I need to write a poem. Um, And both of those seem to work. Now, they may not work equally well in all people, um, but the notion that less thinking or more mind-wandering is always better is not... That's, just, that's not supported. Uh, but the notion that mind wandering and, and, and uh, sort of distraction uh, is not effective for creativity is also not supported. You, you can be creative by accident, you, cre- you can be creative on purpose. It's easier to study being creative on purpose, uh, because we can have people do that within uh, the, you know, the time frame that we actually have them in the brain scanner. Um, but there's, there's solid evidence uh, that, that both approaches uh, are, are, are real.
0: So you can kind of brute force it, is yeah. what you're saying, as well as kind of just waiting. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And and again, that's going to depend how well that works for you will depend on other things, you know, that that are true about you. Um, and so, yeah. Um,
0: I've got two very quick okay. questions um, just to, to, to is that is that all right, Adam? The yeah, first the, the first one is um, just to finish, um, just to, to give some people some takeaways from this and stuff they could apply. Um, my, my first one, I'll give you them both and then you can answer them however you like. My first one is, are there any ways that don't involve um, uh, gently electrically stimulating oh. the brain that people can use, maybe writers particularly, could use to... Uh, stimulate these parts uh of the b- brain you know to to d- develop them and i guess you know neuroplasticity is a big buzzword at the moment to maybe increase the i don't know what are they called Myelina- yeah, my- the Myelination. myelination. Yeah. yeah the connections in those yeah, bits the the, the but anyway, and 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 then the second mm-hmm. question is um can can people actually like electrically stimulate is that a thing that's on the market or people can go to places what's the, what's uh, the sort of prognosis on that? so <clears throat>
1: i'll say this uh, to the first question actually we get big effect sizes which is a, a uh, just a, a way of saying um we we see big changes um when we simply cue people in a in a non-threatening way <laughs> when we ask people <laughs> please think creatively the next time you approach this task we just that sort of deliberate effort to think creatively um, results in big changes in in how people are are thinking, which which in and of itself is encouraging. We haven't zapped anybody's brain at that point. Um, there are certainly uh, lots of other approaches that uh, that have some evidence behind them. Uh, whether it's, but but they seem to be very sort of individual, like de- dependent on the on the individual. So for some people. Uh, it may be social interaction. For some people, it may actually be silence. For, for, for other people, um, it may be uh, trying to read something completely unrelated to what you're looking at uh, and, you know, sort of lo- stop thinking about the problem for a while. But that doesn't work for everybody. Um, so... I think my advice to the extent that it's useful is that um, if, and it sort of harkens or sort of goes back to to something you said earlier, if if you talk to a writer and they say they know what creativity is, well, they probably do for them, right? And so I I think it would be entirely valid for them to find what, uh, what helps and what, what uh, hinders uh, their creative process. And it certainly it means that there's something real happening in the brain. If there's something happening at all, it's happening in the brain. Um, So I think the evidence would support a lot of individual differences in what works for people to think more creatively. I think trying to think more creatively um, without putting too much pressure on yourself or having other people put too much pressure on you is probably the most consistent thing for as boring an answer as that is.
0: no, it's really, that's really, really useful, actually. That's that's huge to take away the pressure for people yeah. that there's one right that's way right. to do That's right. If you scare people, if you say, okay,
1: and- you need to be really creative now and then these three people over here are going to evaluate it and they're going to laugh at you if it's not great. You know, like these sorts of things don't help us, uh, unsurprisingly. Um, but if you ask in a sort of a non-threatening way and, and you make it into, a, um, you know, a challenge more than a threat, Um, then I think uh, those sorts of things do help. Um, And to your question about neurostimulation or can we zap our own brains, people, you know, there are a lot of people uh, in industry uh, who pay attention to these sorts of developments in in the sciences and uh, already, not just because of what's happening in the creativity uh, research world, but other areas like um, memory and attention uh, where you've seen effects of uh, brain zapping. Ah uh, there are already online you can buy these these devices uh, to zap your brain now I what it's really important to be very careful about that because when we do it in the lab we are very careful and we have uh, expensive equipment that allows us to target exactly where we are trying to zap. And as, as we talked about before, more is not always better in the brain. So if you just strap something on your head, which essentially, I mean, you could build in your, in your garage with a 9-volt battery and a couple of wires. You shouldn't. Really, you shouldn't. Um, <laughs> probably, from most of these vendors, the best you're going to do is not hurt yourself. The worst you could do is possibly do some damage. Um, and in terms of effects on performance... You may well see some effects on performance, but they may well be placebo effects. And that's actually something when we study this in the lab that we have to be very careful about. We're hooking people up to this brain zapping device and everybody thinks, oh, when I'm hooked up to this, I'm a, I'm a super genius. Um, and so we have to compare people who are hooked up to the brain zapping device, but not actually getting the stimulation they think they're getting. To people who are hooked up to the brains zapping
0: device. Oh, actually, so you do. You do. You have, have to do placebo so controls have, for, for a study wow. like this
1: because just knowing that you're, you know, you're you're hooked
0: you're up. Hooked up. now hooked up to a super right, brain helmet. Exactly, I would now, feel like, oh, great, I'm the right Exactly right. <laughs> and there's not
1: a there's really not a damn thing wrong with placebo effects, and placebo effects work. Um, it's just very hard to trick yourself, like it's hard to tickle yourself. Um, so, right, but uh, there there are. You know, uh, some companies that are, are getting a bit more legitimate with this, um, there's one called Halo Neuroscience um, that that we've had some uh, interactions with uh, my lab and the Society for the Neuroscience of Creativity uh, that's, you know, came out of uh, some, some some academics, uh, sort of built this. And, and um, it, so I'm not trying to say that that kind of thing in a direct-to-consumer way will never be viable. I don't think we're quite there yet for something like creativity. For something like uh, you know training for uh musicians or training for athletes where you're stimulating motor cortex i think there may be some products now that, that are that are reasonably uh you know real um, that are direct to consumer which which is fascinating but as just sort of a forward-looking yeah. direction the notion um, uh, of uh the of uh, brain zapping uh, as a way to enhance human cognition is, is something uh for people to be aware of um, so that would be uh, yeah something to look out for, um, but uh, so if if we're closing up here, Tim, uh, can I also just because because you have this this writerly audience, I I, I forgot to mention my sister's name, my sister.
0: Oh yeah, uh, please do yeah yeah. Leah
1: <laughs> Leah Naomi Green, um, and her her book, which will be published by Grey Wolf Press, is uh, is called The More Extravagant Feast. So if you're a poet, um, or if you're just interested in in human experience, um, it's a it's a it's just it, it, well she's my favorite poet uh and she apparently if, there, if i
0: if i can find her if you want to send me a pre-order link absolutely i'll, I'll put I'll, I'll put one in the um show notes of today's episode so anyone who wants to go and check it out and pre-order a copy for themselves they can do wonderful that. Um, i'll, that, I'll that, talk that. to leah and, and i'll no have worries. her send that along of course yeah no thank you so much adam i really really appreciate all your incredible sort of knowledge and research and the work you're doing Um, it just, it just seems really exciting and really important. And it has the potential to be the sort of, uh, the, 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 the midwife to so Mm. many other sort of ideas and things, because of course this is, you know, this is kind of meta, this is kind of like meta creativity, right? Yeah. You're being, you know, you're, we're finding ways, creative ways. That's right. The the brain
1: studying and enhancing itself. That's right. Uh, Well, well, thank you, Tim, for, uh, you know, I, I talk to people who even are supposed to be sort of more science media people who ask far less well-informed uh, questions uh, than the ones you've asked. And so thank you for, uh, for this space to talk about things that I, I love to talk about anyway, um, and uh, for your enthusiasm. And, and uh, yeah, just thanks for having me here.
0: That you're you're most welcome. Like I say, I'm I'm not a I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm not even in the scientists, but I am a um, enthusiastic end user of an occasionally <laughs> faulty uh, set of the equipment that you are um, <laughs> studying. So obviously, you know, anyone who can kind of get me a bit closer to a a user's manual uh, and yeah. um, some some way that you know, like I, I think non-invasive uh transcranial direct current stimulation seems uh, better than i'm um, actually having my amygdala removed yes i so would recommend I can... <laughs> that right yeah. no yeah. I, i'm not i'm not i'm not gonna i think that again is something probably not wise yeah. to do in my garage but thank you so much for your uh, help thanks, item, and um have a really lovely okay walk.
1: you too take care